Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen and welcome to 2018. It has been an amazing summer of films and fun and we are back and we have a wonderful, wonderful panel with us. Joining us esteemed traveler and film blogger, Virat Nehru. Virat, welcome back. Yes, I am back from a third world country, back to my privileged first world lifestyle. Where there are films at every quarter and we every day and chris chris evans our intrepid filmmaker who is back and been making films all summer you've had a wonderful some of the time. summer some of the summer yeah yeah i've had a pretty good time lately it's good to be back in the air it is it is wow it's been a lot's happened in the past month talking yeah. about making films though uh congratulations to our newest filmmaker on the panel glenn falkenstein who is now a certified filmmaker yeah that's right that's right he has a good eye i was, I was impressed yeah i was told that he has a good eye i've yet to <laughs> Critically assess that, but waiting to look at his efforts. Oh dear, my film's going to be on film reviewed on Film Fight Club now. I don't know if I can take that. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, we'll see. That could be a segment down the line. That could um, be quite fun. For anyone who wants to be a filmmaker, because I know a lot of people who listen to the, these shows, you know, might have that, you know, in the back of their mind desire. Like, what if one day I just went out there and made a film? We would like to rep once more for Kino Cabaret and Kino Sydney. They're an organization where you can make any film you want, basically, and show it to people in a judgment-free space once a month. Glenn came along to the Kino Cabaret last uh, December, shortly December. before we ended the show. It was. And I had so much fun. Yeah, 48 I, hours of filmmaking madness. It was great. I made one of my own, and I helped out with a bunch of others. Um, and if you do want to make films and a little, little nervous about it, this is a perfect way to get it on the ground. Yeah, they'll be having their first event of the year, I believe. It's, my, it's either the 24th or the 25th of January. You'll have to look into this, but it's at Sun Studios in Alexandria. And we'll be talking more about that soon. Uh, now, you may be curious as to why we are on the air at 6 p.m. That is because for the next month, we will be on the air on Wednesday nights from 6 till 7, bringing you all the best awards, show contention, and films. Films and and we obviously also on the two SEO website. So please do tune in at this time. Say what? One hour of film fight club? And whoa! Over the summer, yeah. You have us for one whole hour. One whole hour of movies and fighting. I can't even deal. So much movie, so much entertainment, so much fighting, so many dudes. So, so many. Uh, Suki, we'll which... try to keep having women on the show. <laughs> we, we have we'll had... do our best to be benevolent in our sexism. <laughs> Hashtag thumbs <laughs> up. That's, wow. <laughs> well, we do have many amazing guests. We'll be having many more amazing guests and filmmakers throughout the year, which we're looking forward to. But for the moment, we are talking about the biggest film event of this week, which is the Golden Globe Awards, which just happened. We are talking about the best of 17. It is 2018. We were talking about doing this in 2017, but we really wanted to hold off until 2017 to pass so we can See all the boxing day releases, yeah. and yeah. But first, we want to talk about the biggest film of 2017, undoubtedly, and that is the Last Jedi. Now, just for warning, this it has been out a month, and we've seen it a couple of times each. So, this is a spoiler-filled discussion. We will be talking about some of the intricacies of the film, some of the major and most controversial aspects. So, if you have not seen the film, we strongly recommend you do. But just tune in another 15 minutes. 15 or so. minutes, yeah. So, I guess the time starts now. Come back at 7:19, 720 and sorry, 6:20. Yeah, but yeah, like maybe every five minutes, we should add a little warning to the listeners who are we, who are tuning we, in now. Yeah. Who are we kidding, though? <laughs> we just I mean, spoiled Star Wars. It's Star Wars, so who are we kidding? I'm pretty sure all of you have seen it. If you haven't seen it, you probably don't care. In which case, join the queue. Well, we, do, we do recommend you see it because it is quite something only as a discussion piece. Now, it's actually quite interesting. The last show of last year, we finished on the evening of Wednesday, December yeah, 13th. Yeah, when Star Wars was about to premiere, and me and Glenn saw it that night. We did. We had a lot of fun. And uh, we're picking right up 
where we left off, as does The Last Jedi. Yes. Now, we... <laughs> nice <you> segue. Know, <laughs> thank you. Now, we've reviewed quite a few films this year, and quite a them, or last year, I should say, and quite a few of them are very controversial, or very con- very divisive, I should say. Mother was one. Uh, Killing a Sacred Deer was one. Though The Last Jedi might just take the cake as the most divisive film of 2017. Yeah, what is going on? It's a Disney blockbuster for quadrant crowd pleaser, and yet people can't stop tearing each other's hair out over it. And there was a fan petition to get it removed from the canon at one point, and that was taken down. That's right pathetic. Now. But actually, uh, going back to Mother, I still found it to be the most exciting, oh, delightful film. Because dude, we'll get to talk about Mother later on. No, no, no. It caused an actual division between Jennifer Lawrence and Darren yes, Aronofsky. We can save this for later. We should okay. talk about Star Wars right. now. I, I, trust me, I'll find a way to bring Mother into this. <laughs> Anyway, so Mother is the new Terrence Malick of Film Fight Club. You heard it here first. <laughs> anyway, now the Star last, Wars. the last Jedi. Um, it is remarkable because I mean, this is I can't think of a film of this notoriety, of this level of blockbuster where um, the, the division among critics and fans, for instance, Rotten Tomatoes has it on ninety yeah. percent. Is critics and users at sixty? It's quite something. I think you know, since we never did a proper review before, we get into just talking about how controversial it is. What did we all think of it? Yeah, that's absolutely- good or bad. Well. I would say I thought, on balance, it was a good film. Not necessarily a great Star Wars film, but a good film with major reservations. I'm going to run through what I liked and disliked about it briefly. We're each going to do that and then have a bit of a discussion. Um, I'll say what I liked about it first. I loved the Ray-Kylo dynamic. They are the two best parts of the series. They're both fantastic. Kylo is a villain, as if not more interesting in many respects than Darth, Vil- Darth Vader. I find him so, so interesting. I also like the direction Luke took in this episode. I know this was probably the most controversial aspect for many diehard fans, and but I did enjoy it, particularly as it expanded our own understanding of the four I love the visual effects in this film. The destruction of the Star Destroyer is not just one of the most best action set pieces I've seen all year, but one of the best visual pieces I've ever seen committed to film. And I liked Rose a lot. I thought she was a lovely character. I'd like to see more of her very much so. Please, if you're, here, if you're listening, J.J. Abrams. Um, what I did not like about the film, and there were several aspects, one was the follow-through from the last film. This is the second film in a trilogy. It should be the part of a trilogy. And as soon as Luke tossed the lightsaber off that ridge, I knew that we are looking at an entirely different film in tone and style. And I have a strong feeling that there has been a lack of planning in terms of mapping out the entire trilogy, which is quite strange to me. And I also saw this in respect to some of the major characters. Um, Phasma and Snoke weren't two of the most interesting characters. didn't necessarily deserve arcs akin to their predecessors in the original trilogy, but just killing them off in the way that happened, or at least the way it appeared to happen, was very perfunctory for me. I did like Snoke a lot. I thought it was really interesting, and I still have no idea who he is or where he came from. Um, I didn't like how Donald Gleeson was characterized. He was one of the most terrifying aspects of the first film was General Hux. And this, in this, he was basically thrown around rooms a lot and Coming told to... Yeah, he was I was okay relief. with that. This movie had enough... Like, it, Snoke was a much bigger part of this movie. In the first film... I know, yes, he gets killed off randomly halfway through. If anyone's just tuning in now, we're spoiling the hell out of Star Wars yes. The Last Jedi. So come back in 10 minutes if you want to hear some movie discussion that doesn't involve spoiling the movie. Or just stay and listen to it and right don't watch Star Wars because who watch cares? Yeah, Whoa. even though Whoa. I liked the movie, I wouldn't, wouldn't um, begrudge anyone who takes the suggestion that Virat made. Thank you, Chris. Anyway, um, no, but, so yes, Chris, um, what did you? I know we have a few different opinions on this. What did you think of The Last Jedi? I thought it was a pretty pretty good film. I thought it was the best um, action blockbuster of the year. I thought um, it showed a playfulness that's totally missing from the Marvel movies. I always take you know like to take an opportunity on Film Fight Club to slam Marvel, and that trend will continue in 2018. Yes, because um, we're consistent more <laughs> than the Star Wars universe, probably. 
Um, yeah, the Marvel movies, people always praise for being fun. But for me, they're lacking the fun of storytelling. You know, this is a movie that goes in wild directions and takes big swerves and twists. Um, you know, even from the opening sequence, it's got this World War II movie homage bomber scene that has like three or four different twists, you know, just in the way that the action scene unfolds and plays out. Star Wars, for me, if you go back to Empire Strikes Back, which everyone seems to agree is the best, that's a movie just full of thrills and spills, mm. just wild little t- mini twists from scene to scene to scene. And The Last Jedi brings back th- that kind of playfulness and tone and, and energy to just create a fun time, whereas I think Star Wars, prior to this, has gotten too self-serious. And I think it did a better approach to revitalizing um, Star Wars than The Force Awakens did, because The Force Awakens if anything took Star Wars, like treated it too much as a joke, this movie injected humor into the proceedings while still totally believing in its own world. You know, the, the, the force awakens was treating this like a franchise with how closely it stuck to a new hope and was remaking elements of this. Whereas this was, you know, imagining a new story within this world and branching out from, um, the force awakens a lot more in my mind. Um, I, I agree with what you said about Rey and Kylo. I loved their dynamic. It was the most interesting thing about The Force Awakens and the only time in that movie where you could see Star Wars stretching out to become something more. And I think Ryan Johnson continued it in a great way. I loved the kind of mix of sexual tension and comedy and <laughs> malevolence in their scenes together. And the shirtless Kylo Ren. The shirtless Kylo yeah, <laughs> which was hilarious. I, I liked how Luke Skywalker... Um, Mark Hamill in portraying him didn't play it too seriously like a Gandalf kind of type character and instead injected a little bit of like the old Star Wars campiness while still you know treating it to a degree seriously I think we can talk later about um, people's problems with how they portrayed Luke in this movie um, but I'll let Virat speak first. The last thing I'll say before I do that (laughs) is uh, always withholding the mic Um, the last thing I'll say is that Finn and and Rose's storyline was really just filler designed to just keep this movie shuffling along. And I think even though that's how it introduced a lot of the like heroic action that, you know, because that wasn't really present in the other plot threads that were going on, I think that's its real purpose to keep it, you know, Ray and, and Kylo are having a big human psychic drama and the Rebel Alliance are kind of have, squabbling about mutiny. Finn and Rose were there to inject like classic Star Wars action, but this movie was branching Star Wars out into something new and different, and that wasn't really necessary. Anyway, Farad? Yeah, yeah, my biggest problems were definitely as to what this movie wanted to be, and uh, I was confused throughout as to whether they wanted to be a human drama between Kylo and, you know, that kind of uh, beautiful very sort of interpersonal dynamic which we haven't seen in Star Wars it's always been about the big set pieces and I was very sort of pleasantly surprised that this could yeah. be almost a two-person character study almost like um, I mean Star Wars at its best has gone to that Empire Strikes Back was going there with Luke and Yoda and then Luke and Vader and Revenge of the Sith was doing that with at, with Anakin and Obi-Wan right so they're following the rule of two in from the Sith Order effectively. yeah basically <laughs> yes. Star Wars is at its best when it's two people like one representing light one representing dark yeah. and we get to see those ideas play out yeah. even Rey and Kylo in Force Awakens is when it was at its most interesting right but at the same time I think that's what really sort of confused me because in trying to do that I wasn't sure it committed to that aspect to begin with there were you know every character from Rogue One for example 
was just shoehorned into this narrative, and I just didn't see the continuity there. Uh, and The Force Awakens was just... I just didn't see the point of that entire first movie. You know, uh, this kind of made that whole first film redundant, if we're going to talk about that. So in terms yeah, of franchise continuity, in terms of franchise continuity, I really had issues with that. Uh, and also, Adam Driver's portrayal of Kylo Ren. Dude, uh, you didn't like it? For me, uh, that was favorite. one of my favorite performances in a movie all year. Yeah, like uh, way, uh, he, was, he was putting in something way beyond what Star Wars deserves. <laughs> that, that's, that's true, but also... It was too much like Patterson. So <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Dude, that, that guy shows a lot of range, I think. Kylo Ren was... But, but like, there was an amount of deep, brooding introspection that I was just like, oh, come on, man. Patterson's over like showing a goofy side and Kylo Ren is just like try goofy while trying to be... I know, but it also felt goofy. So it just like... I was waiting for him to just break out into a basho kind of poem and like, you know, where I'm writing a haiku now about the mysteries of the universe or something. So He probably does. I'm just trying to imagine now Kylo Ren sitting in Patterson, New Jersey. It's, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been through Patterson. It's an amazing image. But i got to say, I really enjoyed his performance in this film. Uh, I loved it. Was it. A, he was a petulant teenager, but also this terrifying a visage who you knew could take That's over right. his empire That's right. and control and world. I'll just say... There's been a lot of criticism since The Force Awakens, and very much deserved in the case of The Force Awakens, about how this new Star Wars trilogy is hewing way too closely to the old. But Kylo Ren um, injected something really new into Star Wars, because like you were saying, you could be afraid of him while still kind of laughing at him, which is what I think real-life evil often is, and it's much more yeah. relatable to us. Something like Darth Vader is just like a mega-Hitler, colossal evil, as is the Emperor, who no one can imagine themselves being because they just represent evil. But when you look at Kylo Ren, you see the shades of darkness of like how a guy can just you know be, feel humiliated enough that he can just be brimming with anger, and you can laugh at how pathetic his motivations are, but still be afraid of what this guy's capable of. I agree. In in terms of actual sort of screenplay and storytelling, I was more convinced of Kylo's turn to the dark side than I was ever of Anakin's turn, which I thought was petulant. But here, yeah, you could really see the betrayal of Luke and how that affected him and that continuous sort of, you know, nail in the coffin that drove him, you know, slowly. It wasn't just one moment. It was like over time. And that's uh, what really... So that's, I think, for the writing, but actually, I'm not sure about Adam Driver's portrayal. But there are other issues. For example, I just didn't, you know, after a point, I was like, am I watching an action movie, which fantastical and that's fun, or am I watching something more grounded? And I was a bit torn apart by that kind of playfulness as to where my loyalties should lie in terms of the actual thematic tone of the film, whether I should just give in to the... Am I watching something like The Greatest Showman, you know? It undermines itself a little bit. Yeah, it does. I, my, Chris referred earlier to the Canto Bite sequence. It's about half an hour on this planet that probably belonged in the Phantom Menace. They could have excised Probably this. belonged in the, on the cutting room floor. <laughs> if they could have excised this entire section from the film. I will say, though, the end scene on Canto Bite, which did require that, yeah, that was fantastic. sequence, was so elegant and so well done. Mm. Um, the major action sequences themselves, um, fleeing from the Dreadnought and from the First Order. Um, Chris, when we first spoke about this, I know you were referred to a Dunkirk narrative in a sense yep. I feel it was then will apart I feel though it was undermined by I appreciate there's a strong element in this film of characters who you see as heroic and upstanding doing things that are wrong or bad or misguided yeah. and having serious consequences except the characters in this film and I'm talking about 
Finn, Poe, and to an extent Rose did things to such an egregious extent that I can't believe either the screenwriters or the superiors didn't just you know slap them wrist, but didn't just lock them up. I would not let these guys anywhere near my very near my you know ship or near my yeah. bridge if they had done any of the things they've done in they, that film. Yeah, they made a lot of stupid mistakes, but I do appreciate characters just constantly messing up. However, it does. I guess I, I'm in having this conversation. I'm starting to understand why the fans don't like the movie so much because it breaks the heroic fantasy of Star Wars to have characters that are so fallible and sometimes so idiotic, yet still wanting us to root for them. I prefer that kind of drama, but I think a lot of the fans don't, and they want Star Wars to stay, stay very simple. In that sense, Luke was interesting, and I will not delve into that debate right now. But just to <clears throat> Luke for the entirety of the film, or most of the film, was definitely quite a jerk, and to then build up his legacy as what it did in yep. the final turn was unbelievable for me. I just didn't buy it. Can I say, with Luke Skywalker, though, uh, people have this heroic image of Luke Skywalker. It has been built up over decades of fandom, but his character was not at all inconsistent with the Luke we knew back in the original trilogy, who was a bit annoying and who flirted yep. with the dark side, particularly yep. in Return of the Jedi. And this is the continuation of that story, the yep. same story we saw with Rey. But here he felt more like Harry Potter. Now, like look, the reluctant, Kurt, you know, the one who just didn't want the mantle. People have turned Luke into the avatar for their wish fulfillment. In you know, people I think believe in Luke Skywalker, the action figure, <laughs> not Luke Skywalker, the character from the original trilogy. And I, I thought this. I agree with Glenn. I think this is a conceivable version of Luke Skywalker from the original ter- trilogy, who then goes through a massive depression after he f- he fails after being believed to be the chosen one. No, and that's fine. But then I just didn't buy the sort of you know, mantlehood that is bestowed upon him and how he then departs into being the hero, the redemption story, essentially. Because then I bought him as this person who just rejected everything. And I'm like, okay, this is new. I actually like my heroes to actually fall. Mm. But then I didn't want him to rise because I was like, I they don't care. They didn't. The problem is the movie's too overstuffed. I think yeah. it would be a much stronger film if it let a lot of, you know, fewer plot threads breathe. If we'd had more of a transformational arc for Luke towards him deciding to come back to the light yeah. at the end, I think it would be a much stronger film. Yeah, and my major issue with that sequence is that we knew, because of something that happened earlier, the absolute stand at worst scene in the film for me, where Carrie Fisher used the forces to fly back to the ship. I loved that. That oh. was just, I, as I was watching it, I, had, I, I thought, is this terrible? Then I thought, no, this is great. It looks amazing. It's so surreal. Like, it's not portrayed in a, a typical way, the way she's kind of like reaching her hand out like a space wizard through all the broken glass and such. Like, it was so visually stunning and so ridiculous that I thought, all right, like, this is what I'm going to a movie to see, a, you know, the movie is to see something as big and dumb as Star Wars for, to like, give me something crazy. But I, I, I get why people... People hate it because it's like, isn't that cheating? Yeah, look, I know it looks amazing. It did look amazing on the big screen, mm. but that element of the force has never been established so well as any of the others. And it also meant that suddenly we knew this film was not going to kill off major characters suddenly or in, simplis- or in a simplistic way. So when there is the final confrontation at the end, you know it's not going to be simply Luke blown up or Luke dispatched too easily mm. and that really undermined the suspense of what was the key and what could have been the most what, what was one of the best sequences of the film what could have been one of the best sequences in the Star Wars saga him dying look I, I liked the um, or what, did he yeah now <laughs> getting into the major spoilers now yes, guys spoilers, if you're yes. back on the air um <laughs> If, yeah, because we're coming up to 6.20 when we said we'd be wrapping this up. So if you're tuning in back now, spoilers continue for The Last Jedi. 
Um, when Luke died, uh, that just felt completely lazy to me. I, I was okay with the idea of him force projecting and pulling off a massive trick. I thought that was cool. Jedis are, are like magicians and illusionists and tricksters at heart, right? But, you know, it just to set us up like, oh, he's going forth to die on the planet. Oh, wait, it was all a prank. Luke's got the upper hand, but then he just dies anyway. It just felt kind of lazy. I feel it does, though, establish the character he will be and the figure he will be in the next film. And certainly oh, yeah. the figure Obi-Wan played I, in the original film. Yeah, trilogy. and I loved the, him inspiring the kids at the end. That was a gorgeous send-off scene. But the way that he died just felt yeah. kind of like having your cake and eating it, too. Exactly. Like, they wanted us to have the satisfaction of Luke doesn't get killed by Kylo Ren. Ha-ha. But they also wanted Luke to die. You know, when I when I was first watching this scene, when I when Luke said, you know, if you strike me down, I'll still always be with you like your father, and then Kylo Ren runs towards him and sl- pushes the lightsaber through him, mm-hmm. and then he turns around like, haha, I'm still here. I thought that what had happened was that Kylo actually had killed Luke, but he was so strong with the Force that he's like, just like I said, I'm never going to leave you now, and he was like a ghost that was now always going to harass Kylo Ren. That would and be- I was so excited for Episode Nine. It's just, <laughs> just kept standing by his bedside table. Hey, hey, Kylo, how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's too Rick and Morty for Star Wars. <laughs> Maybe won't, but like, I want to see Star Wars do that kind of nuttiness. It just might. Well, it's bringing back. It brought back one of the nuttiest characters, Yoda. And I've got to say, oh, I was that's so grateful, beautiful, for this. actually, because we've seen Yoda in the prequels, and it was CGI Yoda, and it was terrible. And Jim Henson made a beautiful puppet back in 1980, and I was so glad to see him voiced by Frank, Frank Oz back on the big screen, voiced and and acted because Frank Oz does still does that on the set puppetry. Yes, he does, and yeah. it's such an exquisite scene. And the scene where they burnt the Jedi tree again. Yeah, this is one of gorgeous. the most controversial aspects, no, but that, it was yeah, wonderful. That was gorgeous, and it was gorgeous in the way it tied into the idea of failure. Which, you know, I wish was more developed. But the film, I think it, we're talking about it on a high level thematic um, level, right? Right now. Yes. To me, in a way, that's a victory in itself in a Star Wars movie released by Disney. Like, yeah. we could never talk about Force Awakens in this way. Yeah, I, I agree. I think just to talk about or a Thor Ragnarok. big, sort of supposedly commercial, big blockbuster movie, and we're talking about yeah, philosoph- ha- philosophical right. themes. Even if it's in a little bit kind of clumsy, thing. it yeah. tried to bring themes and ideas to a mass audience yeah. movie in a time when those are in a race for the bottom in, and just getting stupider exactly. and stupider. So yeah. I, I think Ryan Johnson deserves some credit for what he's tried to do. Yeah, because the last time I think that happened was uh, Logan. with uh, yeah. yeah. And for me, this is a better movie than Logan. Ooh. This, okay. Yeah, that would be a controversial a, take. It's but. a different movie to Logan, and I feel I don't feel like I can compare it to The Force Awakens yet because it's a different film to The Force Awakens. And I love that when it came out because it fulfilled its objective. It didn't. It told a familiar story which it needed to do. It allowed this film to flourish to be something different, which is why The Force Awakens has its place, and I feel this has its place too. There's one more thing I think I think is worth bringing up before we move on from Star Wars. Earlier on, we were talking about the issue of fran- franchise continuity. Um, I feel like the biggest. Like, yeah, this feels a lot different to The Force Awakens. But as you were saying just then, Glenn, The Force Awakens serves a purpose, right, in terms of franchise building. It was the, you know, we know you guys didn't like the prequels, so we'll show you that Star Wars can be just like it used to be when you loved it by remaking A New Hope and adding in elements of Empire and, and Return of the Jedi. It was it was kind of like a remix movie. Um, but the problem is, I think that created a lot of the biggest flaws for this this sequel trilogy going forward which have been carried over and that ryan johnson's inherited because it just makes the whole the way this universe this universe works very unclear like has the war been going on for 30 years and they've just changed their names because it brings us the exact same scenario that the original trilogy was about only instead of the rebel alliance and the empire it's now the resistance in the first order and uh 
Yeah, like what's going? Like it, it makes it feel like is there just eternal war? If they'd set up a new scenario and then showed how the villains emerge there, then it would be okay. It's a new Star Wars story. But now it, there's kind of the sense that between the movies, if you're not reading up on all this expanded universe stuff, there's the sense that between the movies, like nothing's changed and Star Wars stays in stasis, so that Disney can keep telling the same story that sells. Well, I'm hoping that, as we know, there's going to be a, another film every year for the next, what, the rest Jesus of our lives. Christ. Effectively, these films could fill in these gaps, and I'm totally okay with that. I think I would like to know a little bit more about Snoke. Then we may get that in the future film. Okay. Um, where does Star Wars go forward from here? Because it seems like people have turned around and are rejecting the way that The Force Awakens was being so close to what Star, you know, the old Star Wars. And people are also rejecting The Last Jedi's attempts to really shake up the franchise and make it something that can go in new directions, like changing, moving away from the centrality of the Skywalker family, you know, making it a less heroic fantasy with fallible characters, etc. But but that says something about fandom and its sort of uh, good things or bad things about it, because that happened with Sherlock as well. You can pay lip service to fandom and you can fall or die by the sword or you can actually live by it. So it's terrible anywhere you go. I think the what I'm starting to worry is, or about the, the franchise going forward and a place where I think Disney have miscalculated is that it's seeming like people don't really care about Star Wars, the saga, the continuing story, as much as they really love the moment in time when they first saw the Star Wars movies and they want to keep that moment alive. And it's kind of like a nostalgia fetishized object now that can never really break forward and become something new. Well, I actually remember, I'm going back to the very first episode of Film Fight Club here, we were talking about this issue, and I think Chris said, your exact words were, why can't Star Wars be a romance, or this or that in a different genre? And I'd be totally okay with that. I'd be totally okay with telling minor stories on smaller planets. I'd be totally okay with branching out this universe and talking about the people on Canto Bight and on these smaller planets. I liked Rogue One for that reason. I watched it for a second time over the summer. I realized how much I liked it even more because it told a completely different story. I'm okay with hearing different stories in the Star Wars universe. I read the expanded books when I was a kid, and I'm pretty excited to see some of those stories larger than the big screen that was The Last Jedi it will be in cinemas for a long time to come we'll be back talking about the Golden Globes this is this is me the song winner from The Greatest Showman stay tuned your broken parts I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars run away they say no one will love you as you are but I won't That was This Is Me, and that was This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. I saw it. It's a wonderful film. We will this be reviewing Glenn. it. This is Glenn. This, this is, Glenn. is Chris. And this is Virat. That's Virat. That's and all together, this Bill. is me. <laughs> we, could do, we could do harmonies too. Yeah, you hear that, Hugh Jackman? Um, so, yeah, this, that was The Greatest Showman. harmony, Corrine? Wow, that really... I thought up that one over spring break. (laughs) (laughs) Breakers. Uh, Heartbreakers. Speaking of spring break, 
Heartbreakers, we are talking about the Golden Globes, including Golden Globe Best Actor winner James Franco for The Disaster Artist. Wow. It is the tw- it's 2018, and James Franco brought Tommy Wiseau up on stage. What world do we live in? It's 2018, and James Franco brought a Time's Up pin on stage and created a social media backlash. So just as promised, one of your beloved celebrities has been tarnished since we returned uh, over the break from his film Fight Club. He took away the mic from Tommy Wiseau after bringing him up on stage. What is the point of that? That was a weird kind of ego moment, wasn't it? Yeah, like, ah, I must give Frank, you know, props to Tommy Wiseau, but haha, remember you're a joke. To, to, to I'm be the fair, winner. He brought his brother up to him, and Dave didn't say anything, so... You know, but who cares about Dave? Yeah, he definitely you know, should have given Tommy Wiseau the mic. Like, this is Tommy Wiseau's moment. Well, we can only hope that James Franco would win the Oscar, and you can bring Tommy Wiseau, because he has promised to bring but, Tommy Wiseau to the Oscar if the disaster artist gets nominated. Look, let's, but, let's, but isn't that the insulting thing? Like, I felt that that was a very insulting moment. Like, oh, I'm going to bring you, but only because I basically feed it off your yeah. sort of and notoriety let's just be honest. To, and then I won Tommy Wiseau is a more important and more significant film artist than James Franco let's be let's yeah, be clear yeah, about James this. Franco will not have won <laughs> James Franco is one of the prolific artists in Hollywood he makes like 12 films yeah, a year yeah but they're not a good are, a lot of them are <laughs> the, and the disaster, disaster artist is the first, the first would, good one in like years he makes would, like, you know adaptations of Hemingway novels that no one wants to see and yeah. that aren't good but like, anyway. there would be no disaster artist there would be no Golden Globe for Best Actor for James Franco without Tommy Wiseau. There needs to be the worst film of all time for James Franco to win this. I mean, we're forgetting that. There needs to be a worst fact. James Franco award for James Franco to take out every year. And no, Tommy Wiseau uh, hands it to him, and Tommy Wiseau takes the mic off him when he presents it and gives a speech. So no, I, I think Seth Rogen will win that. So many excellent films come on, but I do think he will be. We will be seeing much, much more of him at the PGA and at the DGA and all these James other Franco. award ceremonies. Very if possibly. he doesn't get tanked by the, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Time's but, up. Suki Witch, uh, the Golden Globe. So the ceremony happened this week. Uh, it is a precursor to the Oscars each year. And it we hands out awards for best picture and drama and comedy. And this year, the best motion picture drama went to three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. This opened on January first in cinemas. Uh, we saw this. We talked about it briefly, and then going on to the rest each of the, the Golden Globe stuff. Golden Globe yeah, stuff. Um, um, it had a number of other nominations. I just want to note. Um, this being at Dunkirk. The Post, The Shape of Water, and Call It By Your Name, all of which are absolutely superb films. So it was quite a feat. Uh, but yeah, three billboards. What did we think of the latest by Martin McDonough? Virat, maybe you should speak about this one first before I derail <laughs> the conversation. Yeah, because Chris absolutely hated this one. I, I really liked it. Uh, I liked it in the sense that it was very unlike Martin McDonough. It was definitely one of his more understated efforts, if there could be anything understated about Martin McDonough. Uh, but also it was definitely very Irish, and I felt that was interesting because this was set in America, and yet it was definitely a very Irish film. So I was like, how, what, what are you doing, what is happening? But Woody Harrelson was interesting in that he played it quite straight-faced. Francis McDormand, uh, great performance, but outside of this universe, is it actually feasible? I'm not sure. Nothing in this movie is feasible yeah, nothing, outside of this yeah, highly yeah. constructed, contrived so I, I think universe. You have to buy the sort of fallacy of this universe yeah. to actually like this movie. And I bought it, and I loved it. But I can see why if people just don't buy that, then it's very difficult to get into the movie because everything is highly socially constructed in the cinematic universe. Yeah, look, this movie won the award for Best Screenplay. And Best Actress and Best Supporting Actor for Sam Rockwell. Yeah, but the, but it's particularly with the screenplay win that I have problems because for me, it's the kind of movie where like characters talk a lot so people will say, oh, it's so well written, but it, for me, it's bad on a basic screenplay level in that it relies on constant contrivances 
you know, you mm. can forgive like one one coincidence because life's like that. But when a movie just has like four or five coincidences and every turning point hinges on a coincidence, and also the characters are just stupid to allow events to go forward. They do stupid things. Sam Rockwell does stupid things. Francis McDormand does stupid things. Woody Harrelson is a freaking idiot because he has he, despite being this empathetic, warm, beautiful man, allows Sam Rockwell to be under his employee when this is a guy who the movie constantly you know makes reference to how he tortures a black guy in his in his custody. Like this universe is inconsistent. But this is a Martin McDonough film, and he doesn't glamorize his characters. He's not trying to glamorize his characters, and I feel as purely as a character study. There are three very intriguing characters here. Um, this is the Sam Rockwell, Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson characters. The others are not particularly well developed. Uh, Lucas Hedges is in this film from Manchester by the Sea. I don't know what he was doing there. He's such a superb actor, but he had such a small role as did Samara Weaving and Abby Cornish. Yeah. Um, I had I liked elements of this film. I had other major issues, but Chris, I think you had yeah, really strong, really strong issues. Yeah. The the. Last, I'll try and keep it brief since we have so much to cover on the show tonight. But the last thing I wanted to say until until something else flares up, <laughs> yeah, yeah um, Felix, is that the problem was I think in this movie if it was almost like Martin McDonough's sellout movie for me. Like he was trying to have it both ways in how much he went into sentimentalizing. There's a few terrible scenes. It, it's kind of like you know Chris Nolan making Interstellar when he's been criticized for not being able to do emotion. Suddenly, you know the the guy who doesn't um, glamorize his characters, as you say, is suddenly trying to create heart-wrenching scenes that make you feel for them, and that's way, clearly way outside of his comfort zone. So, you know, I couldn't rect- you know, balance out in my mind the some of the things Frances McDormand does and then the ways that it tries to get us on side with her. Same for Sam Rockwell's character. Or the way that it mocks a character, then tries to make us feel for them the next moment. It just felt wildly insincere while striving for sincerity. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't stand a lot of the underlying essence of what McDonough was doing here. I'll just uh, rebut one point when you brought up about how Woody Harrelson's character could have Sam Rockwell's character under his employee when he was obviously so racist. I think uh, McDonough was trying to make that point about the current sort of racial tensions and mm-hmm. how the police are complicit in allowing a lot of uh, people in their employee and they kind of willfully overlook that fact and that's been going on in American racial tensions. At this point, whether that was successful or there was two on the nose, I'm not quite sure, but I can see the point he was trying to make. I think there was two on the nose because Sam, you know, if you're going to make that kind of commentary on the racial situation with police in America, then it should I think it should go for like burn it all down. Everyone in this system is is irredeemable, kinda of like an angry movie, you know, cut out because as it is, it doesn't make sense to have this, you know, man of such integrity presiding over this totally racist force. Except that Woody Housen, we only meet his character at a particular stage in the character's development. I don't want to ruin it. Maybe he is getting better as a man, but I'm just not sure. We we weren't given enough to know. know, The world building isn't very strong in this film. We weren't. As much as I did enjoy elements of it, the last 40 minutes was quite unstructured, and I feel we've only got a fraction of a movie and a fraction of a story. I feel it wanted to build to a big set piece, and it did, but I wanted to know what happened afterwards. We sadly did not. Yeah, this is a movie about like taking action, and it kind of trails off in a place of, should we take action? I don't know. Whereas the interesting thing is about the crazy actions that this lady takes. But also, like that's the point of uh, Irishness, in, in a sense. It's so sarcastic and so 
self-referential that you forget if there's a point to anything. And I think that's just a British-Irish sensibility coming through of Martin McDonough, where he's like a piss-take about everything, and then you forget whether there's something, any point to it, all of it, you know? Whether so that, there's some, any stakes at all. So that was the best drama of the year, that three the, billboards. That was. It was the best comedy of the year, however. Um, I'd like to remind everyone that there were a number of other excellent films nominated in this category. Disaster Artist, The Greatest Showman, the song from which we just played, I Tonya, which I'm very excited to see in a week, and Get Out, which definitely belonged to this category. But the one that did win was Lady Bird, also won... Uh, Swasi Ronan, won best performance by an actress in a musical comedy motion picture. So for this. keen to see that. Sure, sure. Ronan. See you, sure? Sure, 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 sure. Excuse me for Mr. Nazi. All right, so that is, and that is we we yet since we can't Sorry, comment Martin on that McDonough. one yet. Sorry, Martin McDonough. The Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a piss take, so he'll enjoy it. Uh, well, moving on to other British subjects, uh, <clears throat> Gary Oldman won Best Actor for The Darkest Hour, as can be expected. He was the only good aspect of an absolutely in every other terrible. Film. You know, I hated that. That was the worst thing to have happened in 2017. You know, I think that if you star in a in a movie that's just so obviously baiting for Oscars. Like a, a hagiography of, of Winston Churchill, you should be disqualified from award consideration. But also, we just don't need to glorify Churchill. He was a terrible, terrible historical figure. Can we stop making Churchill hagiographies, yes, we, please? We, we did talk about this last year. Yeah, thank is, you. He is a contentious figure. It was not covered that well in the film. It was quite disappointing in that respect. Um, a much better film was uh, The Shape of Water, which Guillermo del Toro seeing it over the weekend. Best director. I saw this last night. Um, I'm, we were to talk about the film properly next week. I think I'd like to address it purely in terms of direction. Um, it is an affectionate, exquisite fairy tale. Um, he puts together beautiful scenes, not just in the land that we know, but below water. And I've got to say, it is difficult. It is very difficult. And I don't remember, it's very hard to do. I can't remember something has been done in a mainstream film of this caliber to have two characters who don't communicate in a traditional way through a dialogue as we would see in every other film that's been nominated and to create empathy and emotion between these characters and with the audience and have them on screen for most of the action is remarkable, and he did an outstanding job of that. It, it's a beautifully shot film. I mean, I was amazed just by the quality of some We're going to do a roundtable on it next week, yes. so save some of the thoughts. But <laughs> I, was, yeah, I had issues with some of the social commentary, which we will go in depth next week okay, when we talk cool. about it. Um, best motion picture animated was Coco. Man, um, I've heard such good things about uh, this. This is... But- I wanted to catch it before I did my top 10 because I'm hearing it's that good, but I couldn't see it before today. Sorry, guys. This is a return to form for Pixar. It is an absolutely beautiful film. There are a couple of twists. You may or may not see them coming, but regardless, it will hit you. It is emotional. It is raw. Um, the music is absolutely glorious. Um, and the there are many great... After, one thing I'll say about this film, I think we will review it probably in a coming week. There are many great after-credit sequences, whether it be Marvel or what else. This has the best after-credit sequence I've seen in any film. You see this film, stay after the credits. It is so elegant and, and masterful. And of all the emotional elements of this film, it packed the biggest punch. Go see this. It is absolutely marvelous. Right. Move, um, over, move over, call me by your name. And no, the no. Scenes of that one. <laughs> no, no. Uh, That's during credits. That doesn't count. Oh, can I just <laughs> well say played. briefly on why, part of why the Golden Globes have no credibility, according to Chris Evans of 2SER's Film Fight Club. Um, they also do TV awards, and of course, Twin Peaks was snubbed in the best limited series or drama, but he, but Kyle MacLachlan was nominated for what was probably one of the best filmed performances of the year in any medium, Best actor in a limited series or drama series, and lost to Ewan McGregor for Fargo, who was good but clearly nowhere near as good. So because 
what like, because he played the big thing was he played twins, but Kyle McLaughlin played four or five characters you know, in Twin Peaks. The thing is, like <laughs> nobody understands Twin Peaks. That's right. Yeah, the gold. I think Golden Globes people have pretty simplistic, shallow taste. You know, they go for I mean, very simple kind of. They nominated Twin Peaks because they're like, oh my god, David Lynch, without understanding. But they what didn't Twin nominate Peaks the is. show. They nominated Kyle McLaughlin because that it's like we don't like the show, but we'll give credit where credit's yeah. due. But. You know, they couldn't. They didn't come through, and that was clearly amazing. Anyway, I'll stop talking about Twin Peaks. But is, is Twin is Peaks TV, or is it like? Yeah, is it is it TV or is it movie? As film tw- Twitter has been debating. It, it would not be it, you know, Fight Club it, without David Lynch. So here came, you go. Look, it, I won't include it in my top ten because I, let's be fair, it's not a movie. But for a lot of critics, it is. It appeared in number two in BFI's list of the best from polling uh, the largest critics poll worldwide. Yeah. It was the second best film of 2017, according to film critics. Idiots. Yeah, they're stupid because it's a TV show, <laughs> clearly. But, uh, you know, to, to reach number two while not even actually being a movie... I think is a huge accomplishment, which you is heard how many people guys. are talking about this show in, as, as a movie and in the film in the film critic circles. So, um, in pure defense of the Golden Globes, I do have to say for best drama, they did Handmaid's Tale, did beat out Game of Thrones and a number of others, and I mean, Nicole Kidman has won a for a number of series, and it's. Look, I sorry, you think it was a given? I mean, if they gave it to Game of Thrones again, I would have given up my throne of whatever throne I had, the last which I didn't have any. Well, season seven, we have covered it, was not particularly great in many respects. I'm hoping season eight in 2019 help. I'll, it's yeah, another year's I mean, I, I don't care how many incest scenes they have, it's not going to save the show. Um, is that, that it for the Golden Globes? It <laughs> is for the Golden Globes. Uh, we'll be back in a moment talking about our best of 2017. But for the moment, we will lead you out with the best original score winner, which is a beautiful song from, again, that lovely, lovely film, The Shape of Water. Mon amour, ne vous déplaise en dansant la javanaise. And that was The Shape of Water that is in cinemas next Thursday. Please, please do see it. Um, we couldn't. We had to wait till 2018 to talk about our best of 2017, so we're going to go into that now. We've put together our top 10 lists. It's been a big year of films. We've seen a lot of films, a lot of festivals. We each had to pick a few favourites. It was very difficult, but one I had to pick. I saw it at the Adelaide Film Festival. It is coming out in on later this month, I think um, January 25th, I believe, which is Warwick Thornton's Sweet Country. It is absolutely one of the best films of the year, starring I, Helton yeah. Morris, Sam Neill, Brian Brown, Matt Day. Absolutely superb. Uh, yeah. Are we talking about Sweet Country now? I yeah, thought we were waiting until it we, comes we, out. We will wait until <laughs> to talk about it properly, but just right. say this is a oh, yeah, it's thriller. Great. It is a I'm, drama. It is a incredible social commentary with some of the best performances I've seen from Australian actors, not just all year, but all decade. Even though it, I saw it late last year, because it's coming out so soon and it's going to get a wide release and mostly be spoken about in terms of 2018 films, I've elected not to include it in my 2017 top 10, but it would be there. So that's my high praise for Sweet Country. Look forward to it. And Chris, do you have a nomination for Best of 2017? 
look, I, I wrote a top ten, which I could rattle off to you, and then we could pick holes in it. We could do. We all have our top tens, right? Is it yeah. worth um, is it worth reading them all, or should we just we, we should? I, I thought we could give out the palm the palm fist yeah. film fight clubs palm fist <laughs> after we've settled on what's the best according to our consensus. That's true. Yeah, let, let's do that. Let's rattle off. Let's have our moment. All right, uh, Brad, do you want to go first? All right, uh, my top ten uh, in alphabetical order because that's the only order I could arrange these in because I just don't know how much I like these. Uh, 24 Frames by Albus Kiarostami, final feature film before his death, screened at Cannes 2017, and it was fantastic. It was basically, yeah, just 24, four and a half segments, just images, and it's beautiful. I can't, just watch it, just honestly. I have no words for this. Then another Iranian filmmaker, A Man of Integrity by Mohammad Rasulov, which was won the jury prize at Cannes. Man, I really wanted to see that film, but I just <laughs> couldn't catch the two screenings. Oh, it has, uh, if you've seen really any Oscar see for Hardy film, this has shades of a lot of that. What it's did you think of The Salesman, by the way? I, I liked it, but not it as much. Yeah, yeah, right? it's less fulfilling. Anyway. But if you like that kind of social critique of Iran, which does amazing social commentary in a land which is full of censorship i just still don't see how they do it but they're so amazing about it anyway it's a beautiful film uh next one is hotel salvation which screened at the sydney film festival see it because its premise is the most interesting thing it's an old patriarch who checks into a hotel in varanasi basically because he wants to die and uh, there is an indonesian uh, spaghetti western called marlene and the murderer in four acts which is interesting. There is Newton, which we've already talked about. There is a story of an egghead, which was a surprise comedy directed by Debutant Raj B. Shetty, which is now on Netflix, which you can catch. There's Hang Sang Su films. There were four that premiered Man, last year. I missed, missed every single one of his pieces <laughs> of 20s. The one I picked is On the Beach at Night Alone, which is obviously the part autobiographical thing affair with the actress Kim Min Hee, and she won the Best Actress Silver Bear at the Berlinale, so it's a beautiful film to catch. There is also Oh the Fence, which I saw at the Japanese Film Festival by Nobuhiro Yoshimita. Yeah, yeah, Yamashita. Yeah, there we go. Great. That was good. And there's Take Off by Mahesh Narayan, based on a real-life story of some nurses trapped in Iraq and fighting ISIS. And there is Song to Song. Oh, Terrence Malick makes his appearance. Wow. Wrap it up. All right. Oh, dear. Yeah, we've talked about this at great length. And yeah, not one of my... Not one of my Interesting to pick Song to Song. I mean, I'm the Malick fanboy in the house, and that, that one's not one of my favorites. But it has its qualities. And Malik gets his first mention for 2018. Um, <laughs> Many more to He come. has a film coming out this year, so we'll talk about him again. <laughs> we yes, can talk about we it. We promise we'll review it. <laughs> um, my top 10, I've already mentioned Sweet Country. Um, we've talked about the disaster artist tonight. Um, when I do a top 10 or a listicle, I try to pick ones that are a little different that represent a range of genres because um, there are just so many fantastic films out there. And I love thrillers and I love romance, but um, there is quite no match for comedy. And there were some wonderful comedies this year, including The Disaster Artist. Logan was also mentioned this uh, week. This was one in my top 10 uh, one of the best comic book films uh, of my lifetime and certainly the best X-Men film since 2000 and since 2002 where 2003 where they had X2 come out uh, Hugh Jackman doing something very different Get Out uh, fa- did not win the Golden Globe it was one of my all time favorites I rewatched this with my roommates about a week ago and we, they hadn't seen it and oh, we were having so much fun it is an absolutely superb satire of so many layers and each time you watch it you Learn to notice new things. Call you by your name. Got a mention this week. Um, that is absolutely superb. It is 
a uh, it is about identity, it is about romance, it is about adolescence. Call Me By Your Name is sticking true to my predicted trajectory for it, which is the annual movie that gets nominated, but it's way too good to win any awards. It's like it's too good for these competitions, but it's going to be remembered in the long haul. It's not. It is. <laughs> I, I, I tend to agree with Chris. I, I do also agree that it will not necessarily do particularly well at the Oscars. Um, it has, is a, we'll be talking about this more in coming weeks. It is a very, very large slate this year. My money at the moment is on all the money in the world, but that could change any day and in any week. I'm saying Ladybird. I've not seen Ladybird yet, so I'm, I will withhold judgment until I have seen what is, by all accounts, an excellent film. Wonder Woman I is my favorite superhero film of the year. Um, Gal Gadot was absolutely excellent. We see very few films about World War One, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this. I enjoy action films. I enjoy clever action films, and this was clever in many respects. And I appreciated um, everything it did, uh, not just for the genre, but for creating a good DC comic book film. And now this is a bit of a surprise one, maybe John Wick Two. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting pick. I really enjoyed the first John Wick, and this was larger. This was bigger. It was better. This was, it was better, and it was yeah. operatic. And the sequence where all the assassins are running around New York successfully trying to kill him is one of the funniest and best action sequences I've seen all year. There was a lot of great variety in action scene direction. John Wick was good, but I felt got a bit too repetitive. But John Wick 2 finds ways to keep it interesting, You know, throw in twists and throw in elements of comedy to stop it from becoming one-note kill fest. Yeah, the final action sequence in that glass sort of... Uh, yeah, terrific. It's, it's an action movie fantastic. cliche almost, going back yeah. to Bruce Lee, but th- this was executed in such a great way. Like It, it was more like we're throwing our hat in with that tradition, and we're going to do it well. Still don't know what Ruby Rose was doing in this movie, but yeah. apart from that, uh, everything was pretty good. Hopefully she'll be in the next one too. I just saw the reunion of Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves uh, after a very long hiatus on screen together, and uh, that was quite exciting for all the Matrix fans out there, myself included. Um, next film was an Australian film, the first Australian film on the list. Actually, it was Australian-American co-production, Better Watch Out. Uh, I like this for a number of reasons, uh, not only because it was filmed down the road from my childhood home, which made it that extra bit scary, but it dealt with one of the major frustrations in modern film is that people, writers aren't necessarily aware of how to deal with communication and cellular technology and advances in this. There's an amazing YouTube pastiche of all the times in modern films where people have said, there's no reception, I can't get reception. They said a very clever way of handling it and also reunited the cast of The Visit, another absolutely superb film. Um, another Australian film would give a shout out to, we've talked about it on, during the Sydney Film Festival, That's Not Me, which got a semantic release. I'm just so impressed that this film was made by um, Alice... Voucher and Greg Ernstein for $60 odd thousand dollars, and for a film of that quality on that budget, um, literally a thousandth of what the room was made for. It is just, it's bloody impressive. Well done to them. It's my favorite Aussie film of the year. Well, of last year. Wait, did you see Sweet Country? I did, and I still didn't like it as much as I like this. Right, interesting. So better watch out. I've got to check it out. Um, that's not me. That's not me. Oh, that's not me. Sorry, right. Sorry, and I, I did actually, I said, I said, I said that um, Better Watch Out was the first Aussie film. It was not. I heard a Sweet Country earlier, so it was the second right. Aussie film I referred right, to. Right, right. <laughs> um, another one, uh, Brigsby Bear, my favorite Mark Hamill film of the year. Uh, this, <laughs> like Disaster Artist, but I feel in a much better way, spoke to just cinema and a love of cinema and our obsession, an obsession for many people in a way, and how that can be positive, how it can be negative. It did it in an extreme satirical way, but I felt it was a very mature film and one of the best of the Saturday Night Live crowd I've ever seen. And oh, the last one, um, this is one uh, Chris and I both loved. We saw it together right before we this show started, and we feel it is one of the, I certainly feel it's one of those underrated films of the year, and that was Martin Scorsese's Silence. Many, oh, saw, man. many saw Hacksaw Ridge. This is a similarly thematic film, also starring Andrew Garfield. If you have not seen this, it's, yes, it's two hours, 40 minutes, but it is well worth the time. One of Liam Neeson's best performances. It is also of an era and a place and a time which is very, not, not very well dealt with in... Um, 
in Western cinema. That was Japan in the 17th century. Uh, Adam Driver, again, my favorite Adam Driver film of the year. And he was absolutely brilliant as the priest who went with Garfield to the country. Um, I strongly recommend Seek It Out on video or DVD or anywhere. I'll, here's my top 10. If I can convince you guys now, I'll put forward my best film of the year as Silence. That That's the one I would push for. For me, this film showed Scorsese mastering classical filmmaking form. It's such a traditional movie. You know, I'm a guy who usually flips out over the experimental David Lynch or Terrence Malick, such stuff. But this is like classical filmmaking with, um, you know, in line with some of what Scorsese was doing in the 60s, sorry, in the 70s, but also feeling like an homage in some ways to Kurosawa's 60s work in the kind of stately, wide kind of shots showing the, the masses of Japanese armies and in the the way it's so attuned to nature and the depth of emotion that it was going to, this was reaching kind of like Dostoevsky novel type intention of probing into faith and morality and and human choices and human suffering. So so to me, Silence was an underseen film that that should have the push. Call Me by Your Name, I saw again recently and was just as moved as the first time I saw it. I have to talk about The Florida Project briefly. I was stunned by that movie. Um, I loved Willem Dafoe's performance, but I also loved um, the mother and daughter in this film. Um, I thought it was aesthetically beautiful but you know, and funny, but also very empathetic. 24 Frames, I'm agreeing with Verite. 24 Frames for me was one of the highlights of the year. That film was just um, so minimal but found so much beauty in small gestures. Kiarostami was a master till the very end. Um, I really liked I know one that I know you guys weren't so into, um, Karismaki's The Other Side of Hope, um, which you know was a a droll kind of comedy, you know, with that sometimes gets very silly, but it balanced that in a way that not everyone will be on board with, but for me, for me worked very well with a serious drama about the refugee crisis in Europe. Um, I loved also 20th Century Women, um, which I know you guys weren't so big on. But um, for me, that movie transcended the kind of easy indie kind of setup to have some really interesting things to say about how we relate to art and how we relate to our families and friends. I loved The Lost City of Zed, James Gray making a great traditional um, adventure story and infusing it with a lot of depth. I loved the audaciousness and the ridiculousness of Mother. So I'm, I'm giving that one a place on my list. Whoa, I, okay. I liked it for doing something, you know, go, doing something crazy and being unafraid to. You know, next up, probably Good Time. And if that, I think Good Time deserves credit. That's the, be- that's the movie that finally sold me on Robert Pattinson. And uh, that's a movie with just thrills and spills, right? It was a good time. It's a great, it's a great character study of an idiot. Dressed up as a thriller <laughs> and drenched in neon colors. Um, you know, Over the Fence, I'd give some credit to at, at the Japanese film. I'm going over 10 now, but just quickly, I loved Over the Fence. I loved Before We Vanish by Kyoshi Kurosawa. I loved Logan Lucky. Um, you know, I, I it's too early to say if it's in the list because I saw it a couple of days ago, but I saw Paddington 2 and I, it charmed my pants off. Whoa! Yeah, I think in coming weeks we will be reviewing properly The Florida Project and Paddington 2. The Florida Project is superb. I, I preferred it to Sean Baker's earlier film, Tangerine. But big, it, was, it improved on all the problems that I had with Tangerine, in my opinion. It addressed them. It felt like a, a solid 
looking at, okay, how can I improve my filmmaking and stepping forward? I have to agree. And uh, we had Debbie on last year, Debbie Zhao, and she spoke about Pennington 2 and just how, what an excellent film it was. I hadn't seen it at the time. I haven't seen it since. And I think this particular series just goes above and beyond in terms of something that is engaging for children but n- and adults, but uniquely on the same level. Just briefly, what was great about Paddington 2, kids' movies are almost always, the American ones at least, designed around there's the moral and the characters always recite the moral and it's thrust onto you this movie has a moral in the way that a kid a movie for adults would have which is just it emerges through what happens in the story it trusts kids intelligence to be able to figure out what this movie's about rather than saying and the moral of the story is blah 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 Anyway, I'm, I'm particularly impressed you had Lost City of Z in there. Right, thanks. That was I had forgotten about that film. I liked it at the time. I liked traditional old school adventure. It was a story that yeah. is true and that I was not familiar with. And I'm hoping we're going to see more from Charlie Hunnam because he made two films last year. One of them was released a few weeks before the King Arthur film was terrible. But this was oh, yeah. so <laughs> Londinium. Excellent drop. Yes, Londinium. So we've we've just got like what was the other movie? Oh, sorry, I was um, just going to say, we've got four minutes film. left. We've got four minutes, yeah. Oh, King Arthur was bad. But, uh, yeah, so there's a few common ones in there. Uh, Call You By Your Name certainly had a couple yeah. of... I feel uh, like Virat's hatred is enough to stop that from being the film fight club. No, the, uh, they're just... Go and watch it and make up your own mind. Don't let my obviously correct take influence your, you know, whatever. Yes, please do call me by your name. It is in cinemas now. Maybe Get Out is the film of the year? I don't know. Oh, look, Get Out I thought was okay, but I find it vastly overrated. If I, I liked Colossal that, way more than Get Out. I think I probably would prefer Colossal. No, maybe I'd... They're pretty similar in quality, but maybe Colossal made me think more. Yeah. Get Out was a little bit obvious. Maybe that's a Colossal mistake on my part, but who knows? <laughs> They were both very good. They'd be in my extended, yeah. like top twenty, top twenty-five kind of, kind of range. Well, it seems Sweet Country is a possibility, but that might be the film of twenty eighteen rather than twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I saw Warwick Thornton uh, doing a publicity shoot for it uh, down the road the other day. I was like, oh my god, I wanted to go up. He did. He did great. Sweet Country is great, but I'm I'm holding that out for now. Um, is it possible we can come to a consensus here? I don't know. There's so many. Right. There, was, there was excellent films. What did you think there. of Silence? I. I didn't like it as much. I think 24 Frames might just... 24 Frames is amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really sold on Glenn that. I think Glenn didn't see it. So <laughs> I, I, I haven't. Well, it, it wouldn't be Film Fight Club without a lack of consensus on a film of the year. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I wonder if it's possible. What about Good Time? We all liked that. Okay, yeah. I really like Good Time. I really like Good Time. Okay. Yeah, we're going to agree on Do you like the Florida time. Project? Uh, not as much. Okay. But Good okay. Time, yes. I'm definitely on board with Good Time. I could nominate Florida Project. I mean, this was one of Willem Dafoe's career performances, and otherwise an entirely understated film. They filmed this just down there in Disney World. You could have done it, and it probably did it on a shoestring budget. Yeah, I could easily see give it to Florida Project. Yeah, and not Florida feel... Project, or even Get Out. Okay, I'm on board. Okay, <laughs> why not? Why not? Get Out. Wow, it's Get Out. We, we, we spent a lot of time talking about pun. Get Out. <laughs> I just thought that, that movie was... Like it was okay. Like it was good, but I didn't like how it devol- it kind of like devolved into like kill everyone to get out at the end. That well, felt like too if, easy for what they'd set up. Like it, it should have had a smarter conclusion. If Jordan Peele went with the original ending of Get Out, which is included in the extended DVD edition, oh. then that would have been more interesting. Oh, I'm excited to hear this now. So we'll be back. You can watch it. We'll be back maybe with a consensus <laughs> movie in coming weeks because we have many more films to review. We'll be talking about The Shape of Water next week and a number of others. Uh, the Post we will also be t- t- speaking about, a film that will be one of the many vying for the Academy Awards, which have the nominations out on January 23rd, 24th. Maybe if we can't come to a consensus, we should just name our top film of the year each. We've rattled them off, but like we've thought about it. What's the best? That's that's a tough call. I I don't know. I would have. There's a few that I would put Is out. There anything particularly close to your heart? Get out, silence, Get out? and sweet country would be among my favorites. Yeah, I'd say silence. And if I break the rule I put earlier, sweet country, and then call me by your name. 
And then Flor- and Florida Project. Story of an egghead, man of integrity in 24 frames. 24 frames. Man, I want to I want to mention that one too. Ah, <laughs> so many good films. <laughs> Consensus. I like, like me and me and Virat's 20. We'll, we'll give it to 24 frames and Glenn can cry in the corner. So that was the last time we hear from Glenn. Um, <laughs> this, is, this has been Film Fight Club for this week. We'll be back at six o'clock next Wednesday night, talking about a, the post, Sweet Country, a number of others, and talking more about awards season. We just shape of water, right? And shape for oh wow this, yeah this, yeah next is, week um, please stay tuned for stages they will be having some excellent coverage of the Sydney Festival which is in full swing now and please uh, yes if you like the show look at us up on the two SCR page and we'll be back next Wednesday I apologize for the crying in the corner we you know we love you Glenn <laughs> have a wonderful night. <laughs>